Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a, a legendary figure in the worlds of politics and communications, uh, Jennifer Palmieri, whose new book, She Proclaims, uh, is a great read. Um, I broke the chain of people who haven't read it because uh, it was recommended by a bunch of people who we, Jennifer and I both knew probably hadn't read the book, uh, but it's incredibly well-written. Uh, I can see the way people are reacting to it. I've loved the stuff you've written, the excerpts from it and the stuff you've written from it also. Before that, you were uh, worked in the Obama administration, Clinton administration, right? And mm-hmm. and also uh, you were comms director um, and uh, comms director on Hillary's campaign. And Jennifer, I, I, uh, I read in, in, in my doing my research, I read the most dispiriting interview with you. Oh, no. For, well, <laughs> because it was from this moment in 2016. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was just after the it was just after the conventions. And you were being asked about the the lead that you had and you talked about the con- and it's like. I'm reading Nate Silver today. It's just like all the exact same stuff. And I just want to start before we get into your, your book, which is about how to reframe uh, women in the workplace, women in America, uh, and uh, sort of a new declaration of how um, women uh, should function and how we should think about women in, in, the, in the workforce. But, but before that, because you have lived through this, I, I have to start with... Where do you find hope for the country, for the world, for our prospects going forward? Um, because I know that there are more people in America that uh, want America to be more just, think it's capable of being more just than there are not. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that our democratic systems aren't in desperate need of repair. It doesn't mean that Trump can't win again, but you know, what keeps me going is knowing that there are enough people in America that want to make it work. That there are enough people in America, but then you don't become sort of, um, you don't allow the despair to take over when when you know that even if the majority of people right. uh, feel the way you feel or feel some version of the way you feel, uh, there's a poten- potentially a big enough block of people who yeah. feel otherwise to stop impede the forward progress like how do you not let that crush you i don't i can't ever let despair take over because i know that if i let it if i let despair take over at any moment in like the last few years that i've been through i i fear i would never come out of it right so i have never um from waking up you know i i lived through the 2016 campaign and it was so so hard and i thought you know i just wanted so desperately to be over and what I've never really fully wrapped my head around is that what I didn't know as we were closing in on election day, that the worst was yet to come, right? I can't even uh, today, uh, today, I can't even conceive, I, my, I can't wrap my, my head around the fact that, you know, I thought I was on an 18 month journey through the Clinton campaign. And really I was on a, you know, um, and it was six year journey that, you know, hasn't ended yet. Um, Cause it was just, so the f- first few months after Trump won were just, you know, some of just the worst time um, in my life. But I couldn't, you know, it's just like the survival instinct. I was like, I can't give in to despair because I won't ever 
um, come out of it. It, it. And I think part of, you know, this is like so much of this post-traumatic stress, you're not sure, like, am I just, is it, is it all happening again? Or does it just, am I just so traumatized from the last time and I'm bracing myself for a possible another Trump win that I believe it to be the same as it was uh, last time? Um, but it, you know, I, so I think part of what I'm doing is just preparing, you know, that, that, for that, in case that does happen, what am I going to hold on to if again he wins? And I'm going to hold on to that there are still more people in America that don't, don't believe in him and that want to make something else work. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in Milwaukee right now. Um, I'm here with this, with Showtime's The Circus. Um, and I was in Kenosha yesterday um, when Trump came to Kenosha. Yes. And I talked to a lot of people on the street and I try, you know, I talked to a lot of Trump supporters on the street. I try so hard to understand them because I, I feel like if, if we can at least understand each other, if we can find some some common ground, there's a place to build up from. Um, and I felt, you know, coming out of there a little, I, I did, I did find some measure of that. I, the, the, the people there were not as they supported the president. They were glad that he was there, but they were a little wary and tired of the fighting. And, you know, so I'm just, I'm just on the lookout for these bright, for these bright spots that suggest it doesn't always have to be this way. All right. A few questions surface from the stuff you were just saying. One, is when you say you won't allow yourself to give in to despair, can you just talk in a granular way about what that means? Because so many of us feel like we can't control that. So what do you? What are the tangible steps that you take to not allow yourself to be overcome by despair or by anger? I hold on to moments where I saw that I did something that made a difference, right? Um, when I woke up on Wednesday, November 9th, 2016, okay? Yep. Uh, it felt like it's like the scene in the movie you never see, right? It's like where you don't save the world just in time, right? Like the bomb goes off. Yes. And you're like, I, this is some whole other universe I have just stepped into and I have no bearings here. And, um, you know, a couple things happened in those first few months that made me feel, um, like I had some agency because you, you, you felt so lost in that time, right? And the first is that I was really worried, how are women going to react to this loss? Are they going to feel chastened? Are they going to feel like even more devalued um, that somebody like him could win? And then, you know, I think people, women were devastated for weeks. And then you saw the Women's March, right? And yes. it was like, it, it, it was like sort of a confirmation. If somebody like him can win, Rather than feeling defeated, these women were like, okay, I've always had this doubt in my gut that like things weren't quite right. I was like being asked to play by a set of rules that don't apply to me. And his winning was like confirmation of that. And they were like, they felt more empowered. They felt empowered by his loss. It sort of like let them shake off some doubts about themselves that they had. They believed in themselves even more. And so you're like, okay, if that loss can provoke something as positive as that reaction in women, I'm going to hang on. And in my own life, I had this, uh, I had to go to Harvard. They do this weird post-election confab between the two campaigns. 
And, you know, I promised myself I wasn't going to play by the normal rules. Normal rules are your, if you lost, you're gracious, you're like, oh, we screwed this up, we screwed that up. And I'm going to, you know, be nice to the winners. And like, that's how everybody sort of like patches things up and, and moves on. And I was like, no, like, I'm not gonna, um, I feel like these people used race as a weapon, and I'm gonna call it out. And, um, which is not, you know, normally what you do, you don't normally call your opponents racist, like in 2016, that still seemed like a weird thing to do. And I did speak up and I got into this altercation with Kellyanne Conway about it. And I wasn't very composed. I was crying while I did it, because I really care about the stuff. And I was emotional about it. And like, it mattered. It, it like, I got a great reaction from it. The coverage was about that. It wasn't about how smart the Trump campaign was. And it like, it's a seemingly small thing, but it like put me in a different frame of mind that I wasn't powerless. And so it's like, right. when I do feel like how you engage the world, when you change the way you engage the world, you do in fact change the world. It may be in a small way, but like every voice does matter. And those are the things that I, you know, that I look to, to say, okay, like there's not, um, the despair. I just don't see any point in the despair. I don't see where the despair goes. The despair just keeps spiraling. And, um, you know, we got a fighting chance here to take, to not just get rid of Trump. I think we have a fighting chance to be like, okay, now we all see the problem. We all see the, we all see how unequal things are and we can really make the country be that principle it was supposed to be founded on, but like block so many people from achieving. So grabbing agency, like actually deciding you were going to grab some agency and take actions, even if they seemed like small actions or there weren't actions that were going to reverse the outcome, taking some sort of agency allowed you not to wallow in a way. Well, I also did try to change the outcome. By the way, I was like, why are we conceding? Why are we giving up? Why are we saying on election night that he won? He didn't like the electoral college meets in six weeks. He's going to win by the electoral college. Like he did not win. And, um, I had a, you know, ultimately fruitless campaign inside our campaign to keep the our, to keep our campaign going. Like I am the last person in the world to give up on something. Um, and That's awesome. <laughs> well, it was like I think it was hard for some, some people. Just wanted it to be over. Like it was so painful what had happened. They just wanted to move on. And I, um, so I, yeah, I wanted to. I, I and I desperately try to keep those options alive. Find some reason why you know elect because in some states, you know, not to get deep into electoral college, but some states people can can even if the state voted one way, they have the uh, you know they have the ability to vote a different way in the electoral. Yes, college. I mean I don't want to get I don't want to get lost in that, but I'm I'm not sure that that's a great precedent to go after actually, but um, because of you know <laughs> what's what could happen in in sixty days from now. Yeah, right. Because the other side will take that on. Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, I think that that's uh, challenging. You know, you mentioned that you're in, there on the circus and Heileman's an old, fr- I love John Heileman. Um, please give him a hug if you see him. Virtually distanced. Virtually, hug. yeah. Um. But a lot of journalists, I think, um, I have a lot of residual anger toward the journalists who covered 2016 as though it were as though it was a normal situation. And as someone who's in comms, who's really on the front lines of that stuff, I mean, it, uh, how did 
did, did you feel the same way? Because I, I had some journalists on the podcast back then, and I, I at the time even said, this is an existential situation. You, you aren't doing your job correctly. Yeah. Um, and then my, 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 uh, there are certain people that I've come to actually see that I think they are in their own way resisting. Like, I know a lot of people get mad at Maggie, and I think Maggie's <laughs> a perfect example of someone you know, in your book. Like, Maggie is some... I, for, for me, someone who, if she were a guy, she wouldn't take get nearly the amount of shit that she gets. Yeah. But I felt, and I don't know how you feel about I don't know whether you, well, do you feel that that's true? Do you have a problem with the way Maggie does her job? Or, or, I don't have, or, I am, I'm a Maggie fan. I don't know. Yeah, fan. me too. That's what yeah. I'm saying. I, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of hers. And I, I've, I've become one uh, now, really. I've become, we've become friends. And, um, and I see how much she gives a shit about getting it right and about chasing this stuff uh, down, you know. Yeah. Well, but but do you feel like she's operating in a paradigm that's a because you know, one of the things you talk about in your book is uh, women in a male paradigm and women playing by male paradigm paradigmic rules. Right. And so I'm wondering how you see that the covering of this particularly, you know, this this man who trades on particularly um, old fashioned masculine tropes, yeah. even certainly like the Kellyanne Conways in his world are playing by those same tropes. And how do you think someone like Maggie can interact, sort of intersect with that with, without falling victim to playing by their rules? Well, I think that Maggie's a good example of a woman who doesn't, I, th I think that she understands in her gut what she like needs to do, how she wants to do her job, which I think she's got the right attitude about how to do, she does her job. She gets a lot of crap for it, but she doesn't let it stop her. And like, that's, that's the thing. Women, um, you know, and I used to feel more this way than I do. Like, you don't, you don't like to be in uncomfortable situations. You, if you get criticized, you think that the criticism is legitimate and you want to figure out a way to address it so that you can make that person be happy with you. And there are some things that we have to change in the world about how we, you know, look at aggressive, ambitious women. And by when I say we, I mean, women and men both, right? It's not just like, it's not just men that uh, feel this way. We all have these unconscious biases in our heads. Um, but, you know, that's, that, that's like my big advice to women candidates. Just because you get criticized, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And um, Maggie does get criticized more than men, I think. I mean, the stuff, if, if I'm ever on a Twitter <laughs> Uh, you know, exchange with Maggie, the stuff that comes in, you know, you see uh, about her is like for Well, you look at, well, well I, I would say like, if you look at the shared bylines with Maggie and Peter Baker. Yeah. She gets all the shit and nobody gives Peter Baker. I mean, you know, you have to be, yeah. I, I bet you for every 100 people who know Maggie's name, two people know Peter Baker's name. Not in your business, in your business, everyone understands his role, mm -hmm. but in the world, right? And why do you think that, I mean, what is that, what story is that telling us and what can Maggie or people like Maggie Haberman do about it? Well, she draws a lot of fire. She draws, and she's, you know, there's just, I mean, Maggie is sort of, I mean, Maggie's a great character, right? Just, you know, um, for this, for this time, she is a woman who understand who she really understands Donald Trump. She really understands how we think she covered him for a long time. She's got a longstanding relationship yeah. with him. She's, you know, I think she's the best political reporter um, at the New York times. And I have like so much uh, conflict in myself about how I feel about the New York times, but Maggie um, really gets politics and really gets the politicians in this time. And then she is, because she's, pretty fearless about you know she she stakes out territory 
that isn't necessarily, well, one side did this and one side did that. She calls balls and strikes and um, which I think you have to do. I think that um, reporters sort of hide behind this notion of being objective when really none of us are actually objective in the um, in the world. And they tr- they think that if they treat both sides equally bad, then they can't be c- accused of favoritism. And I, I think that that that's actually very cynical. That's saying that both that like really contributes to cynicism in politics. And she doesn't right. do that. She gets a lot of crap for it. But you know that. I think that's just like one of the things you got to get, you just got to gut through and look, we're talking about it, right? In 2016, when Maggie got attacked, nobody was talking about it. And I I actually see that as some measure of progress that at least it's something we see now. You mean that we recognize, you're saying that that, that culturally we recognize, we, there may be plenty of people who, um, think in a way that, uh, that, that Maggie is, uh, in a way, stands in for the times. Like, see, she's, you know, uh, a synecdoche for the times. Yeah. But uh, for the New York Times. and But you're saying the fact that now people can look and say, well, maybe she shouldn't be getting the shit that she's getting is a sign of some kind of progress? I, do, I, do, I think so. I mean, I'm trying, like, this is how, this is how I get through the day, right? <laughs> like, I try to well, find... I try to find some, you know, I try to find some measure like, okay, is, are we sliding backwards or are we moving forwards? And even if you are, not, you know, even if we're like not making big progress, you got to find something to, you got to find something to build on. It's like, okay, we notice, we know what this is now. Like when Hillary Clinton was running for president and it was like, oh, there's just something about her I don't like. And we all thought that was Hillary's fault. And then all of a sudden you're like, people are saying that about Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand and the other women that ran for president in 2020. And then you're like, huh, something else is happening here. And so I see that as awareness that like is better than where we were four years ago. And how do you define that thing? I mean, talk a little bit about as you started to think about writing this book, because this is the second book you wrote post campaign, yeah. both of which were about this question in some way. But this one feels like you got a pretty central thesis or not a pretty central. You got a central thesis about um, about what needed to be declared in a way. And and maybe you can talk a little bit about that for the next generation of women, because right. in a way, I, I mean, to me, I think it, it, it's hard to, to think of Kellyanne Conway changing. It's hard to think of Maggie changing or of you changing, really, the way the modality with which you work a room or a system is pretty well ingrained, probably. But so who are you writing this book for? And, and, and talk a little bit about your the, the central theses uh, at play. Well, I mean, I think even for women my age is like there are things there's doubts that you can leave behind. I mean, I, I I never I guess this is a change that I had in my own head. I a few years ago I would never have des- described myself as a woman in a man's world because I thought uh, to proclaim yourself that is sort of defeatist, right? It um, sure. victimy, and uh, that's not my life, right? Like I'm not. My whole life has not been some long subjugation to men, right? And men have right. not. I don't feel like men have actively tried to hold me back. Men, um, I, male, my male colleagues have always been really supportive of me, but still they rose faster than me, right? I was the White House communications director, but I was the deputy for somebody I was ten years older than. I was ten years older than the guy I replaced. Um, he does not think he is 10 years better than me, right? <laughs> he doesn't think that. Right. Um, so 
what is happening here. And, and what I think is that women have internalized so much um, from the voices we hear on the radio, Brian, to um, the fact that all of our presidents are men, to the fact that all but 7% of Fortune 500 CEOs are men, um, yes. to the sports we watch on television, like women are told you're not as valued as men, you're not as powerful as men. And, you know, even, you know, market forces reflect that. And I, I think that, you know, I internalized that I expected to do worse than the men. I tolerated when it happened. I settled for less money because I just wanted to be valued. I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a team player. Um, and what I've come to realize is that, you know, at some point I felt like I made a lot of gains in the workplace. All women did. A couple of decades ago, we sort of stopped. It started, started to stagnate. And, and I think what happened, like I looked at my own life, I was like, well, what I'm actually doing is I'm working really hard to perpetuate power systems that are in existence, have been in existence for a long time. And they're the power systems that block women and people of color from getting real power, from achieving, like from being able to live up to their full potential. And you got to say this stuff out loud because we have internalized so much and leave behind the doubts that tell you, like, I need to deepen my voice before I start to speak because I, you know, unconsciously want to sound like a man or I have to dress a certain way um, or I can't ask for money because it's going to be, I can't ask for more money because that's going to, like, that's going to be looked down upon. That's going to threaten my, my, my station here. It's like, these are the things that you have to leave behind. Be proud of the fact that you worked really hard in a man's world. Usually, um, you know, women are held to a different kind of standard and that means you it was you, you that means you should be proud of the effort you put into this because it was more difficult um you should be more assured of yourself and um th these you know I, I find like when my own life when i'm leave that stuff behind i do enact and you know i do it does it has changed me i was um and i feel like i'm getting better with age i think that's something women haven't had the ability to feel like they can they right. You, you talk about how men are judged by their potential and women are judged by who they are. And then as you get older, men are judged for their, their supposedly they're so wise, so, uh, you know, they've gained wisdom and women are just sort of spent and done according to the popular yeah. sort of conception or how business looks at them. And, and that's one of the things you're trying to shift in the consciousness. Yeah. And I just, you know, and it's like a small thing, maybe it seems like we change in your own head, but it's something you can do, you know? And I, 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 I'm 53 years old. And I, when I find, when I say that around other women who are in their fifties are like, they look at me like I did, like, I just performed some superhuman feat <laughs> that I, you know, it's like, wait, you can say that you can say how old you are and people aren't going to think you're like washed up or done. And, and like, you don't yeah. think that for men, that's in it. Like when I say my age online and I do, I'm 54. Mm -hmm. And when I say it, I can feel that it's actually sort of transgressive to say it, even as a man in my yeah. business in Hollywood, yeah. to sort of say that you're 54 is still, um, there's something loaded about it, it in is. a way. Most people don't do it. Like they don't. most people don't do it. They would rather say, I mean, people would just rather people think they're in their 40s. Not me. I'm not me. I'm, I'm with you in that I feel like, um, I've learned and grown each year and I've taken on more information. I've become more rigorous in myself, yeah. all these things. Um, and maybe I'm uh, like, and maybe like you in a way, we have a certain privilege in that we've um, accomplished a set of things that allow us to to be slightly transgressive. It's harder for someone to take that risk yeah. when they have less personal agency, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think. I think. So. Yeah. Uh, 
but you think it's much worse in that area, much worse for, for a woman saying I'm 60 reads differently than a man saying I'm 60. I think so. I mean, ageism, I do. I find it subversive to say how old I am too, right? I do love that. It's, it's a little yes. bit subversive, yeah. Um, so yeah, ageism, right? Ageism is a thing for men and women both, but like it just hits women harder. It just, you know, it just, it just does. And I think that, you know, it's not, it might be a small thing, but I do see, I mean, I see women in their fifties are just killing it right now in America. Um, yes. uh, Kamala Harris, for example, um, Kara Swisher, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, women artists that I was talking to actually, um, Alison Moore, who's not in her fifties, she's in her forties, but right. about this. And, you know, she said she always felt like she had a lot of talent and potential as a younger woman. But she needed the knowledge that comes with age to really be as good as she could be at her craft, right? And she feels like she's writing the best songs of her career now because she has like that knowledge is like caught up to um, the potential and the talent that she always had. But you need all those things together, and um, you know, just uh, I, I find just me saying that to women just makes them look at themselves differently. And there's not like some law we need to pass now, like be good to pass the ERA, right? It's these are, I find that women get held back just by a, a lot of the stuff that's in our own head. And you can that in the minimum, that's something that you yes. can leave behind. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, so this, you started sort of a answering something I, I was going to ask, but I want a more full answer, which is what gives you faith that like the written word is useful in this age? Oh my God. Or like, are you writing for now? Are you writing for the future? Like, be, because, you know, uh, the currency that books have is just, I think the, the consensus would be, it's not nearly the currency it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And that all the, all these other tools what is it about the written word that and 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 a traditional book that animates you and that you think is the right vehicle to express what you want to express i do think it's lasting i mean that is uh i had not done any writing prior to uh after you know 2016 is when i started it partly i was like desperate to have that experience of 16 matter in some way yes. um and that you know in writing a book was a way to do that. Um, I find it for me, it like forces me to do my very best work. I mean, the things, and if anything I've done in my career, I'm the most proud of the things that I have written. I write, um, I also write for Vanity Fair and it's like, yes. I, when I'm feeling really crappy about myself or just things in general, I'll go to that page where my articles are listed and I'm like, <laughs> this was good. This was worthwhile. This is worth while work. And so, I mean, it may not matter as much as it did 10 years ago, but I'm not sure if 10 years ago, I would have had the opportunity to write a book. I'm not sure that somebody would have given me that chance. So, um, but it makes me really think hard about, um, right, about what I actually believe. It makes you be so disciplined about your thinking. You've got to cut through all of the BS to get to something real. And um, I find it, you know, I, you know, it, it may not have the biggest, I may not have the biggest reach, but I hear from women who like aren't involved in politics, have read my book and have a great story about how it changed something in your life. And you're like, amazing. Yeah, that's an incredible feeling. I agree with you. I, I, I what, what was your routine in writing the book? Like, how did you, 
like how did you out like because a lot of writers listen to this podcast so yeah and just and people trying to endeavor to do like big projects and that's why i love it i love to listen to writers on this podcast it's amazing yeah me too and and obviously like i i'm a huge proponent of books i just always feel like it's a little bit like t- tilting at windmills but um but there you go that comes from a book and that book has lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years <laughs> Uh, right. There I mean, Don go. Quixote's like there come from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. So, uh, Cervantes, Don Quixote for people who are too young to know what I'm talking about. But, um, but, uh, uh, what was your routine? Like, what did you do to, uh, uh, write the book? Did you outline it? Did you talk to an editor a lot as you were doing it? Were yeah. you, did you give yourself a word count? Like what, what was the actual writing of this like? Um, I got really good advice, which was don't, uh, think about, uh, the point of it. Don't think about, um, the storytelling device, just write all the stuff that's most top of mind, most raw, um, most important to you. And if you get at the root of that, you'll find something. Um, and so I did that for a while. A lot of that stuff ends up not being, I mean, I guess it's sort of like your morning pages, right? That have yeah. You're just before. blasting it out. You're kind of blasting it out. Right. Um, yeah. and the most of that stuff didn't end up in the book, but it yep. got past, but it got you past, um, it just got yeah. you out of your own head about worried about like, well, what's the storytelling device I'm going to use or what's the point, or maybe I should do, you know, and then, you know, I said to my editor, should I do an outline and chapter by chapter? This is usually like some editors will tell you to do that, but I do not don't do that. And so I just, um, yeah, I just started writing and, um, not that it was easy, hard. Were you writing every day, Jennifer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in spurts, right. Every day, um, uh, depending on what other things were happening in my, in my life, but the real, you know, the real guts of it get written every day, you know, probably, probably spend 14 hours a day working at it and six hours was writing and eight hours is stressing and freaking out about it. Oh, I mean, six hours is a lot. I mean, six hours is a lot. That's a lot to actually be putting words on a page uh, from, I agree. I agree with you. Like I could spend 10 hours and only write for three. But then the three hours, I'm like able to really, like I can really motor, but then I'm kind of spent. I'm kind of shot. And then, but do you feel like the freaking out, do you freak out too in the rest of the time? And do you feel like the freaking out is part of the process or do you just get frustrated at the freaking out? I mean, I pick up a guitar and play and like write. I fuck around. I, I don't, I mean, I usually, sometimes I freak out, but the freaking out is much more for me in outlining. Like, um, yeah finding the story the details in that way is harder once i'm actually just writing yep i don't really freak i don't freak out as much but it's more like i have pretty bad adhd and i so like it's a lot of stuff to get me to just i have to have as i was going to ask you about this but you know like you you and i really bond over music and so i cannot write until i have the right music playing i mean i just can't Totally. So that's, I mean, that can take a freak. That's a, you know, that, and, and each thing I'm writing demands something different musically. So what works for me on a morning might not work in the afternoon. And I got to fucking sit here and just scroll through shit until I find the thing that feels like rhythmically right for what I want to write. And that takes like, that's just very frustrating process. But then I'm very happy once I found the music that I'm like, Oh, now I can rock, you know? So what did, did you, did you, um, did you write to music mostly or not? Yes, I do. I do. I have to have some distraction because if it's just silent, my mind is just going bonkers, right? Like you just, 
I, you're like so, I feel like so needy when I'm writing, like I just like a gaping black hole of emotional need, like every doubt about yourself just comes yes. like, it's just, it's terrible. Um, so I find that music is a good, like I need some distraction and that's like a focus distraction, right? It's my white noise and I have to have really, really quality lyrics in my head and I will listen to the same song on repeat for hours. So what's an example of, you know, you, you know to? who it is, you know who it is, Brian, it's Jason. Yeah, Isbell. Jason that's, Isbell. yeah that's what yeah, it that's is. Perfect. Cause it's just, um, you know, sometimes, um, I'm a big Rustin Kelly fan. Um, I, yeah. I haven't seen you. I don't know if you like, No, John, our mutual friend, Jonathan Prince, who we both love, oh, yeah. he <laughs> was playing Rustin Kelly all night the other of night. Course. So yeah, he's so, as obsessed as I am. Um, yes. I love, but, but I mean, but when you want quality lyrics in your head, right. I was just like, I want that. I, that Jason is just, um, that's just where I go. I mean, I no, it's a perfect person to listen to during this, during the, the writing of this. Also Courtney Love, also Hole, also. Hold. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Well, which out, which Courtney, which out, which whole, I mean, live through this, you know, I just, yes. that, that was the first time I heard Miss world was a, I mean, I remember the moment I, the first time I heard Miss world, I was like, who, this sounds like me. This sounds like if I had Amazing. the ability to put like this, like everything that churns inside me into words and music, this, this would be it. I, and yeah, I was that. Well, I, it's such a great point. You know, I've had Liz Fair on here and Suzanne Vega and Amy Mann, who's my friend, but uh, uh, not not Sinead and not Courtney. And I would love to. I should have. I should find a way to get Courtney on the podcast. We've met a few times, and and I should. I would love to talk to her about sort of her that part of what she does. One thing in this in Jay's, not in Courtney's music, but is in Jason's music and is in your book, is sort of like this hope for unity as something possible, more than just a hope for unity. But you sort of suggest in your book that that unity is possible, that getting to the other side of this is possible. And, <laughs> and I have become less hopeful over these couple. I, I'm such a hopeful person and such an optimistic person, but congenitally. Yeah. But But the times that we're living through have made it much more difficult for me and sure. because because um when you have a tyrannical authoritarian leader even if there are people on the other side they become more strident we all become more str- i find yeah i become more strident yeah i find that even when i'm an authority figure where in the work i do then the people who have to um uh, uh, grapple with me become more strident, right? Like it, it, because we're in an environment that has turned, um, um, in, almost to me, is calcified as this strident. Everybody is in this really, um, yep, aggressive posture. Yep. So where do you find actual? I don't know, hope or the thought that it could go the other other way. I mean, I get, I mean, I'm on a day today where I feel pretty hopeful, partly because I just spent some time with a Marquette University pollster. who's like the, like the pollster in Wisconsin. And 
I just was feeling really badly about Biden, you know, about Biden in this state. And I came out of here feeling like, oh, I guess maybe Biden's actually got like a tiny, small, small advantage over, over, over Trump in Wisconsin. And that just made me feel a little better. But, you know, I last week, cause you know, doing the circus, we do, um, we do a round table where like Heilman, Mark McKinnon, Alex Wagner, and myself have kind of like set the table for the week. And two weeks ago we were talking about things and I was like, or that could happen or democracy died and November 8th, 2016. And like, we're just living through the like jet wash. That's all this is now like the afterburn. And Heilman was like, Paul Mary, <laughs> you can't, you can't be that dark in the round table. <laughs> like, that's not what, that's but right. you can be that dark. <laughs> like I would say, but I would say like, and I said this to John, like, I think that stuff needs to be said. Like, this is my truck with journalists during this time, not with John, who I think mm-hmm. has been amazing, especially since Trump's election at, 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 at really being clear about democracies, um, about saving democracy. Yeah. But when I see journalists not really expressing what I know off the record they see as an existential problem, yeah. it, it upsets me. Um, yeah. It angers me, and it makes me ho- hopeless for there to be unity or progress. I mean, how do you square it when you're talking? Because you deal with these people all the time. I mean, you could talk off. You know, if you talk off the record to many major anchors, many major people who write for many major papers, they will say like, "Yeah, this guy wants to be Putin, but he can't be. But he want you know he's not smart enough to be, but he wants to be." Right. And then they pull their punches when they talk about it or cover it. I do not know one journalist who I believe wants Donald Trump to be reelected. Like, right. I, and I know hundreds of them. I don't know one of them that, that thinks that. And what frustrates me is how myopic they can be, and they think too small. Like, I when I said. You know, I mean, it, democracy may have died on November 8th, 2016. You know, like Joe Biden, I love Joe Biden. And, you know, I know him really well. And I, I love him. I think he'd be a great president. And I really hope he wins. But I never thought he was going to be the Democratic nominee because Democrats always look to the future, right? It never works for us to go backwards, to pull out a figure from the past and try to make that person the standard bearer for what we want to do going forward. And the Democrats decided that they wanted Joe Biden. And it makes me, you know, on the one hand, it great because it, it's not like Joe Biden ran a great campaign and kind of like worked his way into any of the nomination. Pe- people wanted him, right? Like people like turned out in droves to vote for the man. And yes. it's not like he ran a great campaign or was like such a great candidate, but they were like, that is who I am voting for. And they, so you're, so that seems stable and steady and maybe it'll work. But then I think if he loses, we're going to look back and be like, well, of course, the seventy-four, the seventy-seven-year-old white guy was never going to be the future. That just showed if that was all the Democrats could do. That just showed that they were already dead. Right? This was already dead. And like, of course, once somebody like Trump wins and has control of the post office and the national and, and and can and can try to try to call out the national yes. guard and can like. This is it's happening. This is democracy dying. This is democracy disintegrating. It is happening in real time. And the press will ask me like, well, you know, but, you know, what do you think about how Biden handled X, Y or C question? You're just like, oh, my God. 
All right, I'm going to ask you an annoying question, tough question, which is, so why won't Hillary, like, call George W. Bush, and why won't Bill call George W. Bush and say, we need you to fucking endorse this guy? I'm not sure it would help. Do you think it would help? I really do. I think it would make a big difference to a lot of people. I think If endorsements matter at all. If endorsements matter at all, then yes, I think... I think that if 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 Obama and Bill and Hillary called George W. Bush and they were like, yes, none of us want to deal with politics and we understand why you don't want to. But, you know, he this is not a decent human being. Yeah. And you should do this. I don't understand why they won't. Do, I don't so know. Why won't I think do that, you know, I believe that if George W. Bush thought it would help, he would do it. Like, I do think that. And I think he might think it might not help because he was like at the end, he wasn't a very popular figure within the Republican Party. Right. Like, right. that's why. And in some ways, I mean, as I'm as we're talking, I'm processing it like, you know, Trump could try to use that as a gift. Like, well, of course, the guy that brought us the Iraq war and like what the economy collapse is it for me. So I, I think that, you know, it's just like and I don't know if it, it's so it's funny, like sometimes the questions the press ask me about, like, well, like what the Biden campaign is doing as if, you know, a couple hundred people um, <laughs> of the Biden campaign and one man in the candidate can like turn around the forces in this country, right? Like, it's like Biden and Trump are sort of vessels for like how the country is divided. And I yes. think in the end, it's like people are either going to decide. I mean, we are in the middle of the pandemic and the greatest economic collapse since the Great Depression, and people are still going to reelect this guy. Like, there's nothing Joe Biden can do. No, well, I think I don't <laughs> no. think they will, but I'm probably, you know, I'm I'm very well might be wrong. I do I'm think really Biden wins, but yeah, me too. I know, I know why you're, I know all I'm the reasons you're worried, and I hear that you. I'm glad to hear that you think that, but just out the rest of the conversation it made me feel like you were. No, I think it's do. No, I think we're living in a dystopia, but I think that there's a chance to work our way through it, and. I look at the map and I see various maps that seem like they're paths to victory. Yeah. So, and then I think that the military will get Trump, even though they say they won't. I think the military will get him out. So I do. I feel good about getting him out. I agree with that. Yeah, I was. I, I, so I, I, I do think the military will get. Like I've spoken about, I think the military will get him out. But, but to tie this back to some things that you, you write about, yeah. you know, when we were talking about, we picked these old men. There are these two <laughs> old men. And it, it, no, we did, right? We picked these yeah. two old men and, 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 and I'm, I think I'm, uh, I, I agree with you that the reasons Biden was, uh, the, the choice, it, it, it makes sense now. I mean, there are, you know, other people I might've thought would galvanize more, but it turns out Biden is a galvanizing enough force maybe to. Can't argue that he is. He proved himself. So to be that's, a and that's all I care about in the way is that we there's enough of a galvanizing force to make the election happen. Yeah. But but I look at your your book's argument for things like there are all these forces pitting women against women. And yeah. and, and I watched some of that. I've watched women I know react to Kamala. And exactly. and and I can feel that they would have been some women in their 50s or 60s more comfortable with a man more comfortable with or a woman who is um somehow less strong of a woman and so there's one thing to sort of talk about it jennifer but what do you think has to happen to actualize the stuff you're talking about i have you know and i find a lot of women have in in my own life i think particularly those of us who worked for hillary like we saw our friend like become this caricature right 
And when that happens yes. to you person and with the with the stakes, right? Like that we had, like it it really does change you. And like what I saw was like that happens to every you know, in some ways that happens to women every single day, right? Ways, you know. Um and again, not because like men are our enemy or men are like actively trying to hold us back, but like we just have this mindset that women um, are in competition with each other. And I think if you, if you believe that what you're really saying is I don't actually belong in the professional workplace, right? You're saying that like, I'm a guest here and I have to like trick my way into staying here. And I think that like creates a lot of doubt and then it creates animosity among, among women. And like what I felt like after the Clinton campaign and what I saw demonstrated is the women's March is like sort of the personification or the, of this is uh, the manifestation of this is um, women are my support system. Like it, this is my mantra now. Like they are not my competition. They are my support system. Like there is science that makes this true that like when women are more than 30% of a workplace, like the place transforms and like what women have the ability to do better when women make more money, other women make more money. Like we are linked this way. Um, but if you believe, I really believe that thinking yourself to be in competition with other women keeps a lid on women reaching the potential that they could, because it's like crabs in a bucket, right? You're just like pulling each other down. It's really destructive. Um, and you know, I've had that, I've had that transformation. I always tried to be a good partner to other women, but I had that doubt, like, am I, is she going to replace me? Is she going to outshine me? Um, and I've let that go. Um, and I see that like w women, you know, they like actually what I found in the last few years is women have really had my back in a way that they never have before. Right. That's awesome. I mean, I know you read behavioral science as I do. So how do you engage that sort of stuff to, because logic alone just doesn't, we've learned over and over again, logic yeah. alone doesn't work. I mean, and I, that's why I wrote the book, right? It's like, that's why we're having this conversation is like, so women will have, women will like be forced to look at that and see what's really at the root of it, like how they're doubting themselves, how they're, um, and what's, what's at the root of the fact that they don't really like, you know, Kamala Harris, there's, you know, we, we want women candidates to be qualified, but not have so much experience or experience in us that they are off putting. We can't relate to them. That's like a really hard thing for women to go through. So be aware of that. Um, yeah, I found myself thinking, I mean, I found myself thinking about Sheryl Sandberg, who, um, I know a little bit and like my interactions with her have been like, she's an incredibly charming and smart person when you meet her. Mm -hmm. And yet she's, um, you can, and I can feel like I'm, you know, she wrote that book and it, it clearly helped so many girls and women. Like, I mean, I know what happened when my daughter read that book. It was just a pure positive change in her life, truly a purely positive change. And then I see this sort of hatred invective thrown at Cheryl. And I can't help but wonder if how much of it has to do with the fact that she's um, a woman. Yeah, I think it, I think it, 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 it is. And, and I think that, you know, I've done enough research about it. I you know it's not, it, even in 2020 in America, it's, it doesn't seem like a radical thing for a woman to be CEO of a major company like she is, or a woman to be seeking the vice presidency or the presidency. But in, in the scope of human history, like these are big changes. These are big deals. And I feel like that's sort of, the, that's like the, the roiling and the reckoning that's going on in the country is like, we were found on this great idea. We were all created equal. If you were white, a man, and you own land, we had slavery. We had genocide of indigenous people. Women were disenfranchised yes. from the start. And like that bill has come due, right? And yes. Um, yes. that, and, you know, so, you know, Cheryl, Cheryl Sanders was a hero one day and then she's, you know, and then 
and then she's uh, vilified um, the next. Uh, Hillary Clinton, when she's Secretary of State, is one of the most admired women in America. And then when she has the ambition to run for president, she's the most polarizing woman in America. And yes. wow, we're living through some wild times. But I think, you know, I try to stay focused on, okay, well, what can I do to like affect that, make that different? Uh, how can I, you know, advise women like that this zero sum game thing they got in their head is killing them and other women. Um, and you know, and then I try to like in my political work or like work on the circus is like, how can I make one side understand the other so that we don't stay in this death spiral or there's some sense of like a shared bond among Americans, even when they disagree with each other. You mean you're interested in understanding the mindset of the Trump voter as a way to uh, offer connection from one side to the other? Yeah. I think it's really dangerous that you know my husband will say like i don't get these trump people by the way like all of his cousins are trump supporters but he's like i don't get these trump people like they don't listen to facts and they're not doing you know he's hurting them economically these working class people yes. and um and i was like you don't get it like you don't get what they get a lot of value from their life you know, their lives are any better it's like yes they are their lives are better because donald trump is president and he tells them a story about america that they that makes their life make sense and gives them value and purpose. Like this presidency gives people purpose. They, they feel renewed. They are so bought into this guy. Like I've never seen in my lifetime. And before that in modern American history, supporters, a relatively small number, but be as bought into him as they are. Right. What is that about? Like we need to understand that the fact that we can't understand that. I just think that's up to me. It's about uh, racism uh, the tacit acceptance of racism. Uh, yeah. And if you're a Trump supporter and you're listening to this, like at this stage in the shadow of the killer in Kenosha, whose name I won't say, you see, I see Trump standing up and supporting that kid yeah. who went in there, either bought guns there, or brought guns there oh, to yeah, go be a vigilante. Cross state lines with weapons at 17. And I watched Trump sort of defend him or yeah. not condemn him. Yeah. And and I come out that this is actually um, a Manichaean situation. There is actually good and evil at play. Now, maybe that makes me, I'm too calcified, but that is how I see it, Jennifer, that yeah. like this isn't, I'm not interested anymore in, in, in 2016, I understand if you were fooled, if one was fooled. But but it, but to be fooled now or to allow that narrative to buy into that narrative now, you are whether you're a racist or not, you are um, you are willing to have a racist or someone who deploys racist rhetoric in the White House and someone who values white lives more than black lives. That just feels clear to me. Do you not see it that way? Um, I think what's at the root of. I think what's at the what I think what's at the root of all of this is that we're getting ready to become a country that is ma not majority white anymore, and there are millions of Americans that maybe not haven't like actualized it that way, but like they don't conceive of it that way. But they're terrified of that, and they want to make America, you know, white again. They want to um, they want to hold on to that, um, and they want to go back to the way things were, and that's what he represents. Um, but I think that some of the, I don't, I think some of the Trump supporters 
believe they believe they're not racist. They, they don't believe that that's at the root of it. They don't think that they're just fooling all of us um, by acting like it's something other than that. I think that some of them don't want to accept that's what it's. But then don't we have two, don't, don't we have two choices? And maybe this is too male a way to look at it. Like just take, but don't we have two choices then, which is either to humor them by saying, tell me how you feel, or we um, ridicule them and, uh, point out directly the um, inconsistency of their logic and beliefs and basically say, well, no, if you support a racist, you're racist. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess if we ha- if, if you give me the choices, I guess I'm actually for, um, you know, you put it as humoring them. I just I, I see it more as trying to like trying to peel something back here so that there's there's some way to. Uh, you know, there's some path forward, whether Trump wins or not. Like these people are, they aren't going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. So they're Americans and like racism and sexism and hate and all these things do not get extinguished in the world, but they can be managed. You know, what would they say to me? I know what they would say to me about me and my beliefs. They would say that I'm intolerant, that I think I'm better than everyone. They'd say that I, um, that uh, I look down on them because they're not as educated as, as, as I am, but I don't understand that like they hold the true values of America at their heart, um, where hard work is rewarded and, um, uh, and that I don't, you know, I don't love the country that I just want to change it. Um, you know, I had this one friend that I grew up with. I was born in Mississippi, in the South for like, I was a kid and, you know, she says about, she's like, why did Obama have to change America so much? So much change. Why can't we just keep things the same? Um, and, you know, so I try to, I, I, I think, I, I don't know, I still try to understand it. I, I just don't know where else we're going to go. Or maybe, you know, maybe it is just as ugly a choice as an ugly effect as you, as you lay out. But I'm not sure how America comes back from that. I just want to find that way. Well, we come back from it perhaps by over time, those people and their thoughts about America, they become much more of a minority. And yeah, they get managed, um, not extinguished. Over time, it gets, uh, it just, uh, if we survive all this, it goes away. Yep. Uh, I know this is normally a hopeful show and this hasn't been so hopeful. Jennifer's book is very hopeful. <laughs> she proclaims, she proclaims is really, it's a great read. I would, and I would say not just for your daughter, buy the book for your son, buy the book for your husband or, or wife, uh, your significant other, be, because the questions that it raises, um, the form of the book is great. It goes back to two different sort of conventions, declarations, and um, uh, uses this form, this format to really talk about uh, ostensibly women in the in the workplace, but really all of us and the role we all have in making a more equitable and human um, uh, world possible. So Jennifer, thanks for writing the book and, and thanks for coming on the show today. I, was a, I, was, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was really great. Thank you, Brian. Um, so you're on Twitter under your name. Is it just Jennifer Palmieri on Twitter? It's J.M. J.M. Palmieri. So you can find Jennifer there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me at moment.bk at gmail.com. And we will see you next time. Bye.